0: Welcome to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. There may be no more complex issue for all Americans than navigating their healthcare. It's an intricate beast of systemic red tape and it scares away most entrepreneurs. But Mario Schlosser is not like most entrepreneurs. I'm Scarlett Fu of Bloomberg Television. And in this episode, we talk with the co founder and CEO of Oscar Health about the future of digital healthcare, how to shape a profitable insurance company that's focused on people, and if it's even possible to make sense of the complexities of the American healthcare system. We have with us Mario Schlosser, co-founder and CEO of Oscar Health. And Mario, as we consider your background, your journey to entrepreneur, your credentials are impressive even before you look into Oscar Health. You were a senior investment analyst at Bridgewater, the secretive hedge fund run by Ray Dalio. You're a consultant for McKinsey. You wrote and co-authored 10 computer science publications as a visiting scholar at Stanford. You somehow found time during all of this to uh, found the largest social gaming company in Latin America. So... My question to you is which of these different experiences have you drawn upon the most in forming your vision of healthcare insurance in the U.S. or does it come down to the fact that you're from Germany and you've seen better systems?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's probably all of the above and and a lot's the latter. Uh, My sister is a nurse in Germany, a um, pediatric uh, uh, ICU nurse. My mother actually was uh, the same And so I had some notion of what healthcare maybe could look like and uh, doesn't always look like in the U.S. Uh, I think the experience I had the last five years, six years now, actually, that most led me to start the company uh, with Josh Kushner, who was the other co-founder, was um, the birth of my two kids. Uh, So while all this stuff is happening, we had um, a four-year-old and a five-year-old, now four-year-old and 5 year olds Uh, By the way, insider tip, if you ever find yourself wanting to start a health insurance company, have kids at the same time. They're very great demo subjects for (laughs) testing out how this all works. (laughs) And, um, you know, really in 2012, early 2012, when my wife was three months pregnant and we were trying to navigate um, how this would all work, how much this would would cost us. Wait, uh, before you get into that,
0: you were in between jobs at the time, right?
1: That's true. In fact, um, that social gaming company that... By the way, Josh and I also had founded a couple uh-huh. of years before that, um, uh, uh, had hit, I would say, the same turbulence that uh, many other social game companies at the time went through. And uh, as, a, as a founder of it, I got fired by the board. Um, and so I actually got thrown out of the company in February 2012. And uh, Josh and I kind of regrouped uh, in New York. You know, this was mostly in Buenos Aires, Sao Paulo, um, Latin America was uh, the games, are very popular and uh, we, you know, wife pregnant, we were talking about what we should do next. Um, and then Josh actually said we should start a health insurance company. <laughs> I was sort of like gearing up for a um, year or a couple of years of uh, mostly trying to hit singles as opposed to trying to go for a <laughs> big home run and do something very complex. But um, coupled with the experience of, at the time, going through the pregnancy yeah. or watching someone go through the pregnancy, it seemed like a good idea to at least try.
0: So what kind of insurance did you have if you were in between jobs your wife was in academia yeah. uh, what kind of coverage did you have because at some point you were outraged into action?
1: Right uh, I think I had um, United Healthcare at the time, uh, mm-hmm. one of the big five insurance companies, the biggest one actually in the, in the US. And uh, here's where the problem started. I didn't know that I had United's in a sense you know I mean there was an ID card somewhere in my pockets. it was probably <laughs> mostly rubbed off you know and stuff like that. And uh, I, it wasn't really my first thoughts to think about the health insurance company um, when it came to how do I navigate the system in front of me. That's not really what you think of first. You go and ask your friends maybe, you uh, you go and Google it, you know, and you kind of go through those usual channels. You don't think of necessarily engaging your insurance company, and that felt like a big gap in the way the system works. Mm-hmm. Um, the... Uh, you know, experience then was, what would this cost me? How much, uh, which pediatrician would I go and try to find um, to now take care of the kid once once uh, he's born? And those things I couldn't really answer even once I realized United, I maybe could just give him a call. The other thing that then happened was, um, uh, you know, we won COBRA, which is basically you leave your employer, and you keep paying out of your own pockets for a while the premiums for the insurance company. Right. That's, a, I think, a thing that Bill Clinton introduced in the 90s as an, as an option for- So you don't lose
0: your insurance don't lose insurance
1: for a while, for like yeah. 18 months or so, uh, something like that. And um, my wife, who, as you mentioned, was a postdoc at Columbia University at the time, uh, she uh, finished her postdoc uh, just before Noah, our kid, came, and she was making, I think, 40000 bucks a year or so in, as a postdoc, and then went also on Cobra on her own rates and realized then that her COBRA rate was going to be 2000 bucks a month. And so if you do the math, all this time that she was at Columbia five years or so doing a postdoc, uh, she was earning 40000 bucks in take-home pay. And behind the scenes, um, Columbia, her employer was paying 25000 bucks or so to the healthcare system for clearly sort of like overpriced insurance uh, for probably uh, too rich of a sort of benefits mm-hmm. um, for network designs she would have probably opted out of. Uh, she would have rather said, um, you know, give me insurance coverage, give me the right kind of coverage and let me take half of this amount of money you're paying behind my back to somebody else home and I do my own, you know, health care with it.
0: And along the way, during 2012, uh, the Supreme Court also upheld the individual mandate. So that kind of created an opening for you to rethink about what you might do uh, with yeah. health insurance.
1: That's the, you know... Part of every I think company's founding story, uh, a company that makes it to a certain level, I think, in in its evolution, is a degree of totally dumb luck. You know? <laughs> and so in our case, I think the fact that um, uh, Josh and I talked about this uh, in March two thousand and twelve for the first time, at the first coffee in New York. you know, what do we do next? Insurance. Uh, and that's we then, a few months later realized uh, there is a new market emerging, you know, the individual insurance market, which really didn't exist almost before. Uh, That was complete coincidence. Uh, And um, the way this really went was that when Josh said we start an insurance company, I literally told him, I said, you know, go and hire McKinsey. This is the kind of thing where I don't know what the differentiation would be. I don't know anything about insurance really. I know it kind of sucks for everybody I know. Mm. Um, But what would you do differently? It seemed like a thing where you got to put the pieces together in a very tight, operationally um, orchestrated way. And you know, McKinsey whatever would write you down how that would work, and you could maybe found it. Um, but I looked into it a little bit uh, and uh, you know, read a bunch of papers and whatever and again realized that um, the market for individuals in New York State buying insurance out of their own pockets in 2012 was something like 20,000 people. So this entire Tiny. state, uh, almost nobody was paying out of their own pocket for insurance and the reason was that you actually couldn't pretty much, you pretty much couldn't do it. The way the market worked was that you would either um, get underwritten against, meaning, uh, you know, you could not buy insurance because you stubbed your toe at some point 10 years ago, literally at that level. And there's an insurance company in Minnesota, in Minnesota I think, that's, um, uh, that would give you insurance if you had a kid born through vaginal birth, but not if you had a kid born through C-section. because the probability And that's something that you won't know C-section.
0: until the birth comes. It's
1: crazy, right? But that's the way the market worked at the time. Um, So either you got underwritten against uh, or you had a sky-high premium that you couldn't really afford to to pay for. And so in 2012, in middle 2012, the Supreme Court basically upheld what's now called Obamacare, Mm -hmm. the Affordable Care Act. Um, And we realized, you know, wow, overnight in a city like New York or in a state like, you know, downstate New York, basically, about a million people would come into this market who didn't have insurance before uh, anything from you know freelance designers to dog walkers to restaurant workers to university lecturers who just didn't, didn't get insurance through the government or through the employer, they would buy it um, and we would be at a level playing field mm. uh, vis-a-vis the incumbents because incumbent insurance companies don't really sell insurance to individuals, uh, which I knew from the crappy ID card at United. <laughs> yeah, so
0: so it created an opening for you. So, okay, walk us through then how your wife's experience, your experience, would be different today if she were insured under Oscar when she was pregnant. How would she be treated? What, would, what kind of services would she have at her disposal? How much interaction would she have with the insurance company, with doctors?
1: Yeah, it's a whole bunch of different things. So first of all, um, we would know uh, much more quickly that you are going through pregnancy. You know, we uh, pair every member of Oscar up with a internal concierge team Uh, It's four people in our customer service staff, and one of those four people is a nurse. And whenever you interact with Oscar, whether it's through chats or calling us or whatever, um, the same four people will get back to you. So from the beginning, you build up a level of trust with these four people uh, that you wouldn't have if you called United and end up somewhere, probably not even in the US, frankly. And and so uh, that concierge team gets a real-time data feed uh, of anything we would be able to know about you from how you interact with the healthcare system uh, that we think um, is important in helping you with. And so in this case, uh, the first time she'd gone to an ob and um, that person who had diagnosed her with, okay, you're pregnant, uh-huh. would have been able to pick up on that signal and the concierge team nurse would have reached out to her and said, great, you go through pregnancy, um, best of luck and here's how I can help you with all of this. Here's how many ultrasounds you ought to have. Um, do you have a pediatrician in mind? Um, do you like your ob Can we help you with anything? Along those lines, so it's kind of from the very beginning a very different level of uh, engagements. We had a case, uh, you know, a couple of months ago that I remember talking to a nurse about, where um, a member in another state uh, was going through pregnancy. It was all going well, but somewhere through pregnancy, uh, the woman developed a, you know, kind of pregnancy-type depression, um, mm-hmm. mental health issue, basically, and um, you know, if the, the nurse had the relationship with her. To have her open up about that, and could then help her get the right help for that. Whereas otherwise, whether the busy OBGYN would have been able to help and connect the dots on that is sort of a, uh, oftentimes an open question. So, so it's, that would, Yeah,
0: it's personalized care, it's customized care, it's high touch. Exactly. At the same time, you use what you call a curated narrow network. I I kind of liken it to a really well-run HMO rather than a broad network. My question to you though, is how do you sell people on the idea that narrow is good when everyone prizes flexibility and options? I mean, everyone wants as many choices as possible. How do you tell them, no, 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 actually, we're gonna give you this, this range of choices in terms of doctors and services, and you're gonna like it more?
1: Yeah. Uh, that has a whole bunch of different aspects um, in the answer, but uh, let me talk about, I'd say, um, personal experience and macroeconomics, okay? Those two on the difference on the spectrum. Uh, personal experience, maybe starting there. The pediatrician we then went to, uh, we found him because a couple living in the same apartment building, who was pregnant around the same time as we, as you know, my wife was, uh, kind of randomly we met them in the elevator, realized, oh, you're pregnant as well. Okay, bundled over that a little bit. There's
0: that dumb luck angle again.
1: Exactly, and and asked them, uh, you know, where are you going to take your kids once uh, once he's born? And they said, you know, this guy, and we're like, great, that's going to be our pediatrician as well. I mean, that was the strength of the. Uh, quantitatively, data-driven scientific, you know, <laughs> process we went through basically to find this position, and um, uh, you know, we actually were lucky in that one. So that's not a great example for how this can go wrong. But mm-hmm. um, in the end, this is a sort of this is, a, I think, very common experience. The um, scientific evidence, oftentimes, of work on what constitutes physician quality is still fairly thin, and it's fairly thin because uh, nobody's really asked um, as much for it in the system. And as, a res- as one result, healthcare is the only industry I know of where um, the way the sort of like market forces work, uh, there is nothing that forces costs and quality into a line. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have um, this, you see this everywhere you go. Uh, there's a study from uh, our regulators in New York that's um, basically a couple of years ago asked all the hospitals in New York to compile claims information, give it anonymized to the regulators, and then look at... Uh, you know, how effectively and efficiently are these hospitals uh, treating patients and how expensive is it? And the, um, it just downstate New York, so not even like across the state, but just downstate New York, which is basically Long Island, New York City, and so on, the lowest cost hospital on a risk-adjusted, demographics adjusted basis um, is at a cost index of 0.58 and the highest one at 1.82, okay, so a factor of three in costs. Even in the, between the highest quintile and the second highest quintile of costs, there's still a 30% cost difference wow. um, how these hospitals deliver, deliver care. Uh, then you look at how, at least on a hospital basis, there is some quality metrics compiled by the governments, by certain not-for-profits, and so on, how those correlate with the costs that's underlying this. And um, only about 30% of all indicators on for quality are even correlated positively with where the hospitals are in those quintiles. Uh, and so that also means if you look between the fourth and the fifth quintile of costs, 30% cost difference. You know, no difference in quality, basically. And so we looked at this and said, um, uh, that's a, a crazy situation to be in. We're spending about 18% of GDP on healthcare. Uh, the next highest um, costs country in the OECD, the Club of Rich Countries, spends about 11%. That's Switzerland. You know, that's a very rich country. I don't know if you've been there, but it's very nice and everything. They've got universal coverage, not a single-payer system. Um, It's all private hospitals and private insurance companies, but universal coverage, Uh uh, they kind of make that work that way. Ironically, it's actually Paul Ryan's favorite healthcare system, (laughs) so there's something to be learned from that even for Republicans. Um, And somehow um, we we are not able, even though we spend a fifth of our income in the end, to build a system here where uh, higher costs somehow maybe means higher quality, um, or where there's even any relationship there and that's what we now said. Given how unscientific oftentimes our discovery processes are for finding healthcare. again, my personal story and many other things we've seen, given how um, really outrageous uh, the cost of the healthcare care system is in the U.S. and how just bad it is um, from an economic perspective and even a moral perspective to have high-cost providers get away with it, in a sense, not delivering better costs but just charging up, um, what? how can we combine those two insights to what's building what we think is a better model? And that is, for us, building selective networks. Mm-hmm. It's basically going in and saying, in a place like New York City, who is a hospital system that wants to deliver high-value healthcare, that can do everything, right? It's not about, um, you know, when you have cancer, you, know, you, you, know, you can't go to the best doctor. Um, but that also wants to deliver this at really good, good unit costs. And then how can we build physician groups and practices around that, so all the referral patterns work out, so we can prove that at any point in time, we can get you in time to a physician when something happens. We can oftentimes you know, schedule appointments more quickly than the incumbent insurance companies. Um, and so we put this together, and that becomes a model that puts pressure on unit costs, mm-hmm. um, and therefore can deliver better cost outcomes. Uh, and also we really think because again quality cost don't correlates we can get you to the highest quality physicians there at a better cost outcome
0: okay my question to you then is how important are brand names in healthcare because if for instance you're in New York you have cancer everyone wants to go to Sloan Kettering right because that's the name that you always hear of um, I look at who your partners with in these different states in Ohio it's uh, with the Cleveland Clinic, yeah. in Nashville, it's with Humana, in California, in the Bay Area, it's UCSF. Here in New York, it's Mount Sinai. Does that matter to your customers, to your members, who the network is, or do they trust that you've curated the network to the point where, even though they haven't heard of this doctor or heard of this uh, organization, this healthcare organization, they believe that they're going to get the best treatment?
1: Um, so I really think we are at the, um, at the beginning of this journey. I think that's, uh, if you, look 10 years out, it's very evident to me that um, almost all of US healthcare will have to reorient itself um, in this more value-driven comparative basis. You know, the, the, um, as an example, again, if you look at, there was a recent study from the RAND Corporation on employers in Indiana, self-insured employers, their outpatient hospital rates are on average 350, 80%, uh, 358% of Medicare. That's a way of measuring costs. Uh-huh. Ours are around 200%. So right there, um, there's a very big cost difference there. Uh, Warren Buffett said just recently again, I don't need tax reform. Uh, if you look at kind of, again, uh, uh, corporate taxes on corporate profits, as percent of GDP, it's something like 2%. So you knock half of that off as maybe a percent. That's you sort of like give US businesses in an increased competitiveness vis-a-vis their counterparts in other countries. Healthcare, 18% to 11%. So you knock half of that off you 3.5% better in terms of competitiveness. We're gonna have to do something about spending that cost curve. The only way to really get at that is through unit costs in healthcare value chains. So almost all of the system will move towards that. So we can talk about a Cleveland deal as a good example of that in a second. but it is a journey, uh, not everybody will buy into this. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, for us, uh, in the first three years of Oscar in New York City, we were actually, we had no chance of building our own hospital system, our own, uh, our own hospital network and doctor network. We had no members, we had um, you know, early on no license even, uh, and um, a bunch of good ideas and smart people basically. The idea that we could go in and negotiate with the CEO of Mount Sinai a good healthcare deal was preposterous. Um, so for the first three years, we rented a physician hospital network It actually that works in healthcare. There's companies that lease out their own contracts that they build with hospitals, providers, and so on. Um, so we then, in 2017, for the first time, launched this Sinai Montefiore in the Bronx and Westchester Um, and the Catholic systems on Long Island's type hospital and physician network that we now have. And um, in that transition, about two-thirds of the members we have stuck with Oscar Mm -hmm. and about one-third left. So right there, you see it's not for everybody. When we survey the members who who left uh, at a factor of three and a half to one, people who left told us I'm leaving because a physician of mine is leaving versus a hospital brand that I like is leaving. So this is really... Almost all about the physician. Okay. Which again, I think to me is very hopeful because the physician isn't where the the cost equation of healthcare is broken. It's the sort of like the facilities, the emergency rooms, the imaging centers and stuff like that. So if you can, and this is basically what we're doing. Um, if you can build a network where you have fewer hospitals, but we can quantitatively show that yes, if you get um, a you know cancer episodes, um, you have complex chronic patients you can still get world-class care, which we can show. We, mm-hmm. we know this all from government scores and other studies we do and so on. And we can then tell you that the person who's really gonna take care of you is on the one hand, your concierge team, your OSCAR concierge team. On the other hand, the OSCAR teledoctor. Mm-hmm. We have a staff of teledoctors who you can chat with and talk to and so on. And then a very highly curated set of physicians who we then also often have you know, appointment scheduling integrations with, um, EHR integrations with, and things like that. That becomes a very good system, and then um, what we still do, of course, is when we authorize and go through with members um, complex conditions. You know, uh, then uh, we we look at what works best for that particular condition, and we have members who are, you know, across the country in facilities where some very specific treatment is needed, and we then make sure the members get there, get flown out there, get the single case agreement that's needed for that, etc. cetera. Okay.
0: You know? So one thing that you've done, and I know a lot of people in our audience are uh, interested in, is the tech and disruption part of the of your business model. You've made the case for why uh, cost and quality in healthcare don't align and how they haven't for years. But you're using the same existing healthcare data that everyone else in the industry has access to. What you're doing differently though is re- is thinking about it in a different way. You're slicing and dicing it differently. You've got um, a doctor on staff to to reorganize it to make it more clinically relevant. Talk to us about what you've done there and how that's changed the outcome.
1: Yeah, so um, the kind of two reasons that I got excited about Oscar and the idea of starting an insurance company back in those days was, um, you know, on the one hand, of course, you know, user experience and, and all the stuff I was pissed off about. <laughs> but as a computer scientist, the two things that appealed to me were um, uh, the fact that the insurer has a incredible data visibility in the healthcare system, unlike almost any other actor in healthcare. If you're a physician, you see the drugs that you prescribe, not that the other physicians prescribe. If you're a hospital, uh, you don't see a member until he or she walks into the ER. And oftentimes you can't get in touch again when the person leaves the ER and things like that. The insurer sees all of this because at the end of the day, somehow the bill's gotta get to the insurance company. So that was one thing, data visibility, fantastic. Um, from actually running these games, you, know, you asked about how I connect the experience up. I knew that um, uh, knowing if you prefer a blue cow or a red cow on your farm, you know, those were the kind of games we had, uh, isn't enough. You gotta also entice people to actually do something about that. Uh-huh. Um, And so it is important that we can give financial incentives and change incentives, and the insurance company can do that because it controls the flow of money throughout the healthcare system. If you really think about this, nobody in the healthcare system uh, has a business model where um, they are better off when the healthcare costs come down. Not the hospital, not the physician, not the drug company, not the imaging centers, really only the insurance company. We oftentimes think that the insurance company... You know, is antagonistic to the member, in a mm-hmm. sense, because you know, the way they get at that equation is by denying stuff. Right, or there's that or, tension. Exactly, or not answering your phone calls, you know, and they're by implicitly denying, basically. Um, but if you really think about it, the economics are aligned. alliance, and um, if you stay healthy, if you, for um, the right reason, uh, go into the wrong kind of location of care, and this costs you money, and the insurer helps you avoid that, right? kids crying at night, don't go to the ER, call a tele a doctor, for example, that's a, a good alignment, in the end, on the economic side. And so um, uh, this idea of using data and building incentives around it in OSCAR. Sorry, that was a long precursor to what we're doing with data as a, as a story there. Um,
0: you're, you're making it, billing codes more transparent. It, say so that.
1: Exactly. Now, what are we doing <laughs> with data? Exactly. What are we doing with data? Um, uh, again, uh, kind of to take another step back, uh, the problem with data in healthcare is that the entire piping of the system was built for payment purposes and nothing else. Yep. Because everybody in healthcare earns fee-for-service, because the hospital makes money when you walk into the ER, when you know, the imaging center makes a study or whatever, uh, it, nobody really had to ever um, add clinical payloads to the data going back and forth in the healthcare system. It's all about pay me for this thing that I did, mm-hmm. and maybe for this diagnosis code. And that's what the data in healthcare is. That's very sparse data. Uh, just a recent study that I just read about yesterday. Um, in the UK, you're trying to m- machine learning classifier on uh, discovering uh, melanoma in like photos of skin or whatever. The uh, best doctors had specific sensitivity of 65% and um, you train the you know, neural network and it went up to 71%. You know? A very small in- improvement because the underlying data was crap you know? yeah. and literally that's the problem in healthcare. It's only built for payment purposes, not for anything else. So. What do we do with that then? We um, realized kind of early on that uh, the biggest step forward in data is not so much necessarily more comprehensive clinical data. You can oftentimes find out more in conversation with a member or a physician what's going on with a particular person than you have encoded medical records or whatever else, but it's about the real-time nature of it. Uh, the more we can know in real time when something's happening with you and then engage on that with you, that avoids the big mistakes in healthcare that sort of like puts, puts helps you go back on the right path in healthcare and things like that. And so in New York, for example, we know um, for almost all the emergency rooms in real time when you are in the emergency room, and again, your concierge team would reach out to you and say, and hey, we see you in the ER, um, you know, can we help you with that? Uh, yeah. Probably not right while you're in the ER, but then making sure that whatever the doctor tells you, you understand, um, we get you an appointment as a follow-up, we remind you you gotta go in, we make sure you pick up the, the drug and things like that. So, the real time nature is very important. Um, there is uh, a wide field of data. So, um, for the technologists in the room, uh, it's amazing how, I'd say, um, not well thought out the ontologies are in healthcare. And here's what I mean with that. So when you go on the typical insurance company websites, and oftentimes even hospital websites, and you kind of click on that drop down field that says, you know, here are the physicians uh, that we have, and you look the at the departments that. and all that. Exactly, yeah. all that stuff, and you count how many specialties they distinguish it's usually do 70 and 100 or so. Um, when we look at uh, what you really need to know to get the right disease and issue with a member to the right physician, you have to have about 325 or so. Wow. And so we have those internally, we basically rebuild that, um, and then we scan the physicians, what exactly they do, uh, and we then get you to the right person. All the way to, um, again, personal example, my kids both had their tonsils taken out. You know, like snored a lot of nights and, and stuff like that. And eventually, had tonsils taken out. And um, uh, and uh, I, you know, we, I, I had my concierge team look for the physician who would be able to do that in the best possible way. And I asked some pediatrician as well. And you the, you know, when you ask people, you get the usual stuff. If you go to this department leader, go to this guy who runs this pediatric department, whatever here, um, or you know, go to this guy. He was my buddy in medical school. That's also like an oftentimes uh, heard thing. Um, when we looked at the data again, I ended up going to the guy in New York who did a 1,000 tonsillectomies in the last 18 months. It's a guy named Dr. Shinhar, if you care, if you care <laughs> to know. Um, literally the single most frequent tonsillectomists, whatever you call it, uh, in New York. And he's a machine doing it, just five a day, basically. And if there's one sort of like known correlation in healthcare b- between quality and some other data uh-huh. uh, element, it's actually quantity of procedure or frequency of procedure there is a correlation there. You know, this guy knows how to do it, um, and he will just do it over and over again, and be good at that. Right. Uh, and that's how one re- one way we use uh, information. So real time, you know, finding physicians and things. Great
0: like that. example. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the situation now, the context now, because obviously uh, the Republican-led Congress repealed the individual mandate at the end of last year. What changes have you made to what you do? Has it changed anything?
1: Um, I mean, the last. You know, I, w- I was gonna say the last 18 months have been um, even more interesting than usual. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think it goes further back, I'd say the last three or four years um, since the ACA launch have been, have been wild. For the following reason, when you have a new insurance markets launch, uh, it's always chaos at the beginning. Yeah. Um, if you go 15, 20 years back and Medicare Advantage was launched, uh, which now today is the most profitable insurance market for all incumbent health insurers, it was also a total mess. You know, there was membership coming in, went down again, Shows sure lost money, went bankrupt and all that kind of stuff. And then finally the market settled in.
0: How many in, years later?
1: Uh, four or five years later. Okay. It took about, I think 2005 was like dip in enrollments and it started coming back up again in 2001 or so, I think is when things started growing for real. So four or five years later, basically, it started stabilizing. And um, uh, the biggest reason is that you just don't know early on how to price the risk in the markets. You know, you, um, in the AC, the AC did something, there's a lot of very good things, very smart things uh, that um, you know, if we lived in different times, both Republicans and Democrats would be able to agree on. You know? In fact, uh, one guy from the Heritage Foundation literally said this once to me. I was at some kind of roundtable. That guy was there as well. And he basically said, yeah, we would have never gotten away with putting in high deductible plans, you know, if, if it hadn't been for the Democrats doing the ACA. Because Republicans and, and, um, and many economists think deductibles are a good thing, and I actually tend to agree with that. If you manage it properly, mm-hmm. um, like we give people free telemedicine, for example, so even though you have deductible, the routine care oftentimes is free. Um, but anyhow, that's how sort of like the landscape looks. But early on, you don't know who's gonna show up. And again, smart things the ACA did, is that they allowed everybody to come in and get the same price. And that is a good thing for overall risk pools in insurance markets, but it takes a while to stabilize. So, um, until 2016, uh, these markets were very difficult to navigate, Um, and even now they are. Uh, But until 16, insurers had to kind of guess where the risk is, understand the way the programs work. There's all kinds of complicated transfer formulas and pricing and in there and whatever, that we had to kind of figure out how this works. Um, in, in October 2015, uh, about nine months, six months after we priced our plans for 2016, mm-hmm. okay, I get a call, cheerful fool from um, at the time uh, Andy Slavitt, the guy who runs CMS, our head Regulars and says, "Hey Mario, uh, and it's always you know you get a scare when the regulars call you. Basically, he's like, you know, I just want to let you know something. Um, you know, this this program called the Risk Quarter program, uh, where Oscar is owed 200 million dollars under." Um, it unfortunately will will not be funded. And you'll get 2% of that. (laughs) So suddenly we were short $200 million or something like that. So these things all happened even before there was an election. Uh, And that really meant that um, no matter who had come into power in 2017, uh, this market needed fixing and stabilization. And now um, in in many ways I think uh, it certainly was not helpful who have all this sort of like back and forth and the rhetoric around we wanna kill this market, yeah. it's not a good market and stuff like that. I really do think that in the end, um, what everybody on Capitol Hill understands uh, or everybody in DC understands is that it's a very, very bad idea, immoral obviously, but also bad for elections frankly, to throw 15 million people who have gotten health insurance through the ACA basically back on the streets. It's bad for even the hospitals who now get more funding through these kind of programs. And so we always thought that wouldn't quite happen. Um, and if you actually look at the way um, our regulators dealt with us, again, the administration in HHS and CMS,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it was always a lot more pragmatic um, and to the point, okay. and, and sort of like saying, "We know we got to make this thing. You know, we, we know we got to somehow make this thing work. We can talk about the mechanisms, but we got to make it work somehow." Um, and so I think that's kind of what happens. You know, even the. Uh, CSR defunding at the end of last year, one thing that got a lot of press, um, in the end the way it was done and signaled and and sort of like presupposed and prepared uh, wasn't a negative for the markets and for the insurance companies and therefore for the members as well. Um, But uh, So we got to make sure that that stays that way.
0: So like so many other things, the bark is worse than the bite and there's deep pragmatism at the end of the day. you talked about some money owed to you. In the first half of 2017, I believe Oscar lost $58 million. Your revenue has been increasing because you have been expanding. I believe this year you're expanding to six states from three states. Yeah. Presumably you kept losing money in the second half of last year as well. How patient are your investors? We're talking about Google, Capital, Fidelity, Founders Fund, yeah. Peter Thiel for that matter. I mean, if it takes four to five years to find some kind of stabilization, as you mentioned earlier, how long yeah. are they willing to wait?
1: Um, so uh, I think they are... The good thing about Oscar is it's a very clear business model. You know, we didn't have to reinvent how to monetize chat applications or whatever. You know, it's very, very <laughs> straightforward. There's a premium coming in, there's a medical costs, medical loss ratio going out, and we have an administrative overhead. That's it. I mean, nothing else basically. Um, and so, what we were always able to show to the investors, and the reason why they've always, uh, why why they've been excited about the 15-year time horizon, not the kind years. of three years or whatever, uh-huh. is we understand the parameters driving this, you know. Uh, our medical loss ratio would have been 85%. We would have made money if the stabilization programs had worked as intended, if they hadn't played games with that stuff, you know. We have a very different conversation probably now, even, I mean, it was a great conversation so far already, but uh, <laughs> that would have <laughs> been another be thing on it, you know. Um, and uh, and this year, well, in two thousand seventeen, we had a very important proof point on that. Um, this thing called the medical loss ratio again, costs we have for medical costs divided by the the premiums we get by our revenues, uh, went from you know one hundred and twenty percent, which was you know in two thousand sixteen, that was our kind of like sad peak, uh, to about ninety five percent, which yeah. means we actually have an underwriting profits uh, for the first time. And so, the core insurance operations are now producing or sort of like price correctly, now producing underwriting profits. Uh, you call it co- gross margin positive in the world of like tech and, 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 and uh, non-insurance startups, if you will. That was a very important proof point because um, to both have uh, the growth we now had, and we now have north of a billion dollars in premium revenues for 2018, uh, not plans, but in the bank because people have signed up already for 2018, uh, and to couple that with a 25% drop in the medical loss ratio, I don't think many people thought it was gonna be possible. I mean, we had, uh, um, you know, uh, the biggest reinsurers, for example, bids on reinsurance contracts with Oscar, uh, and, you know, several of those CEOs said, you know, I, I think Oscar's more more impactful than many other companies um, that I, I know of um, and can make huge change in healthcare, but I don't believe you can drop the MLR by 25 points. Well, it did, did happen, and, and we were able to do it, and we have a pretty straight line aside from there to getting to the mid 80s or so now, now going forward as well. So, um, long story short, uh, they are very patient, they're very excited about this. When I first pitched this to, to Peter and um, Peter Thiel and Brian uh-huh. Singerman, the, the founders' funds um, uh, uh, guys who put money in, it was funny because um, we were sitting there and, and Brian, like, literally his like, head starts turning reds and he's like so excited he starts scribbling on, like, I think it was a napkin probably. He's like, You know, I have this cancer company over here, I've got this EHR company over here. And he drew them all in kind of the circle. I'm like, I always knew the thing in the middle of the circle is missing. That's the insurance company because you got to connect every all, all these other ones up, you know. And so that's always been his long-term vision. I think uh, on that point of view, I think we're uh, in, in great shape there. One additional thing there, which helps the investors as well, uh, we um, have three very important partners uh, for 2018 and beyond: um, Cleveland Clinic, uh, Humana, AXA. Uh, They're all important in different ways. Cleveland Clinic basically realized as a hospital, if I want to make money in the right way by Mm -hmm. having you be healthy so you don't come to the emergency room as opposed to only treating you when you get sick and are in the ER basically, I got to become like the insurance company. Collect premiums, invest in your health, and then make sure Put you're Put in resources
0: enough. to keep you away.
1: Exactly. Well, not keep you away, I wouldn't say that, but, um, you know, basically... To keep you, from uh, having keep you healthy, yeah. exactly. Or send somebody to your home or something mm-hmm. goes on, stuff like that. And so they came to us after going to many other incumbents, many other companies and said, let's launch a co-branded insurance plan, Os- Cleveland Clinic Oscar insurance plan, where we, where we share risk 50-50. Uh, so this is the first time this, this you know, big clinic that has, you know, is number one, number two in the U.S., every single, and probably the world from a quality perspective says, I will just really take risk on the costs I incur with managing this population. 50-50 with Oscar Cleveland, They're extremely powerful. Um, that means they are really deeply in beds with how we do things. Yeah. If they didn't trust us paying claims properly, managing people's healthcare properly, understanding who people are and things like that, this wouldn't have worked. AXA did a so-called quota share reinsurance deal with us where they also shared um, a bunch of our risk uh, on their balance sheets, helps us with the regulatory capital and all that kind of stuff. Humana, corporate plan in Nashville for employers, also 50/50. Um, the fact that uh, these extremely sophisticated organizations say, "Oscar's got something I cannot find anywhere else, uh-huh. which is technology and member engagements. Those two things, and I trust Oscar with how they do the work.
0: It's an endorsement. Uh, it's an extremely
1: powerful thing, and that would not have happened two years ago. You know, I mean, this is a big uh, learning curve for us as well, uh, but it's, I'm glad it happened now.
0: All right, right. Let's. Uh, I have a couple of statements I want to put out there, and I want you to tell me if it's a myth or a fact. And some of them are connected, some of them aren't. Uh, because you're technology-driven, there's a lot of data, people can access the Oscar network through their phones, you are a millennial hipster insurer. Myth or fact? Total myth. Really? <laughs> yeah. you, you don't only have... Uh, Twenty-six to thirty-five year olds. Do you have? Any, do you have any sixty-five year olds?
1: Yeah, we have plenty of them. So and it actually depends on where we are. In New York, we, we skew a bit younger, um, but that still only means we have about, uh, call it, twenty-five percent between twenty-six and thirty-five years olds. You know, the rest is, you know, over thirty-five years olds. Um, in Texas, San Antonio and Austin, two cities where we are quite big, actually, uh, about, um, I'd say, fifty uh, percent of the population is over the age of. Um, 4550 you right. know so a much higher um, average age than we have you know in new york and some um, is also lower income uh, so it really depends on where we are and from the beginning i really thought that's um, uh, both because it's the societally more interesting thing to do but also because it appeals to me more from a, as a complex problem um, if we just ensure uh, and no offense to people in the room, a bunch of you know Birkenstock wearing, granola eating, um, freelancers in Brooklyn, you know, <laughs> then it's not that interesting. There's nothing interesting going on with them from a healthcare perspective. We should be ensuring 65-year-old diabetics and, um, who have complex uh, issues and, and doing a good job with them. That's the issue in healthcare mostly. I mean, 5% of um, of patients in healthcare uh, drive about 65% of the costs. Right. Uh, and so um, if we want to get at the cost issue, which again is the biggest issue in healthcare... Uh, you can't do it by covering. You can't do it by exactly. Uh, the millennials are important to stabilize the risk pool, though. Right. So you have, to, if you don't have insurance, you gotta buy it. If you wanna, um, um, if you wanna uh, vote, um, in, uh, you know, in which direction the country should go w- without actually voting right now, you should buy insurance <laughs> because uh, <laughs> it stabilizes the risk pool and makes it harder to mess with uh, the regulations that I think have helped. 50 million people to get insurance.
0: All right, well, speaking of regulation, Oscar is a tech company that benefits from more regulation rather than less regulation.
1: So I think that's a fact. I actually think that's a fact, and it's um, somewhat ironic, but I really think it's true. Insurance is a thing that doesn't work um, if, uh, you know, if if you just get it when you're sick and you don't get it when you're healthy. It just doesn't work that way. You have to have some regulatory framework where we are all helped to make the right decision for our own long term, for for for, the, for society's long term, because uh-huh. you cannot control when you're going to get sick uh, uh, as much as you think you could. You know, I mean, literally about um, I think 30, 40% of healthcare outcomes is driven by behavior, uh, and all the rest is genomics. Um, yeah. It's you know whether you have the right physicians around you, uh, bad luck, and things like that. And so, it's there, there is regulation that's needed. We can have an argument about the right regulation. That's for sure. Uh, and um, uh, that also isn't as easy as it sometimes sounds. You know, I am for high deductibles and I'm for, you know, these narrow networks we design, uh, even though it's not entirely intuitive to the person who looks at this for the first time, that right. those are the pathways to go. But I can show you connotatively, if you have three more hours, why it works that way. <laughs> and lots of, <laughs>
0: lots of data to look at. Yeah. All right, you mentioned Josh Kushner. So let's talk about this Kushner connection. It helps more than it hurts.
1: Uh, that's a myth.
0: That's a yeah, myth. That's definitely
1: a myth. So, okay, put it, it depends on what you mean with that, okay? Um, there would be no Oscar without Josh, um, but that was before, you know, his family uh, uh, started doing other things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... so um,
0: Has there been any concrete benefit from the Kushner connection?
1: No. None whatsoever. None whatsoever. Publicity. Um, yeah, but not in the good kinds. I would say. <laughs> you know? I, mean, I mean, I think the, the, the low and that was when we had an article that somehow connected Taylor Swift's to uh, the administration, I think it was Taylor's best friends with Josh's girlfriends and Carly, uh, awesome. Carly, exactly. <laughs> Somehow that got mixed together in one big conspiracy theory. Um, and so, your name
0: was in the story as well, Oscar. E- help exactly. In there.
1: So I didn't understand that one, but uh, no, it, it really hasn't. Um, it has been a difference. I, I, you know, we have been on Capitol Hill and and uh, talk to you know senators on both sides and, and House members on both sides, um, and uh, you know show the data we have and basically say, look, if you give people the chance, they're going to buy a Plan with a big deductible, high deductible, because they 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 kind of know better how they can manage that. So, um, they want to go, going to want to buy a different network design plan. They want to get the cost down. They Wait, was good it healthcare. Josh
0: lobbying co- lawmakers?
1: No, it okay. was uh, Josh never been there. It was always you know we have a guy named Joel Klein on on board. So yes. We used to run the school system in New York, and so uh, he's chief policy and strategy officer. And it was Joel and I basically going out there, and Bruce Gottlieb, general counsel. The three of us are typically the people who go out um, and tell these tell these stories basically, and so. Uh, Again, it's, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a strange, DC is a strange place. You know, I, I will not pretend to ever understand it. Uh, I think there's a lot more understanding, behind, as I mentioned, behind the scenes that um, yeah, this, is, this has done good for society. Um, nobody wants to take away insurance from people. Uh, and they're going to somehow get there, I think.
0: All right, final question before we open it up to the audience. Fill in the blank, Mario. If Oscar Health had to ask Josh Kushner to ask Jared, and the White House for something, it would be blank. Uh,
1: it would be blank. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what about the two hundred million dollars that the federal government owes you? That's
1: not that's not a that's not an administration thing. You know? oh, they it's, can uh, help.
0: They can help with the request.
1: That's in the courts right now, frankly. So you know, I'm not sure the relationship is best there. You know, so um, no, it's not the. It's just not. I don't think it's the way it works. And and um, uh, I, I really, really do think that uh, we have go, what we have going for us is high word of mouth, you know, different user data, and things like that. And I just don't care who's friends with whom to try to get that across. Uh, I have a super tight relationship with um, you know the regulars in New York, where there's no connection anyway, because they just really buy into. The stuff to do. we're doing. And yeah. I think that's the way it works in the end. You know?
0: <laughs> Mario Schlosser, co-founder and CEO of Oscar Health. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, or email techevents at Bloomberg.net to get invited to future events in this series. You can also watch any of the interviews from this series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube.